welcome to Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession. Blummin' heck, we are on series four, episode number three. My name's Ginny Carlin and this is JB Gordon. It's a special one because we are drawing towards the end of World Space Week. Jamie, one question for you, my friend. Have you ever wanted to boldly go? Do you know, if I'm honest, I don't think I did want to boldly oh. go. Um, well, a couple, of, a couple of reasons. I've got two left feet, I've got no common sense, and I'm slightly agoraphobic. So when you're talking about the expanse of the universe, that's not good for an ag- agoraphobic who doesn't like big, wide spaces. So I thought, no, that's probably not for me. I'll, I'll leave it to, to people far more qualified than myself. It's really weird, isn't it? I, I'm completely obsessed with space, with NASA, with everything that the UK are doing at the moment to get into space. But my attention to detail is just so rubbish that I would no doubt take off and go, oh, look, there's a, there's a pigeon or something. And then the whole mission would be over because of me. You know what I mean? I, I would not make a very good astronaut. But of course, everything about space and the technology that where we are now was all developed, you know, with a lot of military input. So, you know, it's a perfectly acceptable subject for us to cover this week. And we've spoken to some marvellous guests. Absolutely. And one of my favourite ever questions about space is what does space smell like? And what is the answer? Apparently, space smells like a bit like, you know, like, um, you know, like when a power line's burning, a metally smell. You know, like sometimes when meat smells quite ferrous when it's cooking, like like an overcooked steak. Oh, yeah, I know plenty about that. (laughs) Well, that's an interesting fact that I wasn't aware of, so thank you for that. Well, thank you to Mike Massimino, who was an astronaut on the Space Shuttle. I read that in his book. Without further ado, let's find out what's been happening in World Space Week. We've got some amazing people that we've been speaking to, haven't we? Yeah, and we'll we'll start off with a guy that I managed to catch up with. It's uh, Delian Asparuhav, and uh, he's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Varda. Now, the reason this is of interest to us is they currently have something orbiting uh, the Earth, and they're carrying out chemical experiments and manufacturing stuff up in space to see how the process works. But also, this kind of a sideline, a bog-off, buy one, get one free, (laughs) is that you also get... Um, this hypersonic test bed. So they're looking at how structures react to travelling at hypersonic speeds, like 25,000 miles an hour, which is what their little orbiter is going to come through the atmosphere at. So that was hugely interesting to me. But I started by asking Delian about the origins of VADA and why it was founded. Delian, thank you so much for joining us on Mav Geeks for this uh, special Space Week edition. Tell us a little bit about Varda, why it was set up, and and the process of setting up the company in the first place. Uh, yeah, I've been obsessed about this idea around in-space manufacturing for almost a decade. Really, truly believe that ultimately the industrialization of space and you know creating basically economic means for humans being up there was how humanity was going to eventually become truly multiplanetary. We uh, you know basically started the company uh, you know call it summer 2020, late 2020. Got our first round of funding towards the end of that year and opened our first office basically Jan 2021. So uh, and what Varda does is we basically build the world's first uh, in-space uh, manufacturing facilities uh, independent of the internet. National Space Station or any government-run space station, as well as our own in-house, basically hypersonic re-entry, uh, you know, capsules uh, to bring the basically produced materials back down. And we flew our first flight uh, demonstration mission uh, June 12th of this year on a Falcon 9 rideshare, uh, successfully manufactured the pharmaceuticals, uh, and then are coming close to being able to re-enter in the United States as we continue to work through some final steps of regulatory approval. 
Uh, we'll, we'll come to the hyperspeed in just a moment. But I, I just wanted to know a little bit about the manufacturing process in space. Why is that, why is that a good thing to get into? Yeah, so you know, it's been relatively well studied now, even from like the you know mid seventies, from the early days of you know the space shuttle and Skylab, all the way through you know obviously the International Space Station opening up in nineteen ninety nine, that a ton of different chemical systems are very affected by you know microgravity. If you think about it, there's basically four fundamental forces of physics: strong and weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and gravity, and they fundamentally dominate effectively all chemical systems on Earth. We basically run almost all chemical systems at one g or at higher gravity levels, and it's a somewhat arbitrary amount in that that acceleration is just based off of the mass of the Earth. But you can imagine if you remove, you know, basically gravity from the equation entirely, there are some chemical systems that, you know, change how they um, uh, how they function. Uh, and sometimes that change can be an extremely beneficial change. Sometimes it's a completely, you know, uh, useless change. You know, you can have a, you know, astronaut, uh, you know, float around in circles and, you know, show some water droplets and it doesn't have economic value. Uh, but, you know, there also have been, you know, proofs of economic value. For example, Merck flew one of their blockbuster monoclonal antibody biologics and were able to show that they were able to massively change the performance of the drug in terms of deliverability to patients, rather than having to go into a clinic for one to four hours every day for an IV drip, you could instead basically take it in the safety of your own home with a syringe that you get sent home with. And so uh, microgravity can just affect chemical systems. And because you can imagine pharmaceutical drugs, when change can produce some of the highest value for you know any any type of product. And so um, why does it you know end up changing? Well, you know, fundamentally, when you're inside of a gravitational field, anytime you have a thermal system, uh, especially with either liquids or gases or you know molecules of basically different weights. Uh, you produce what is known as like, you know, convective currents effectively. So if you think of like a candle that's lit in front of you, if you put your hand above it when you're inside of a gravity field, you feel the hot air rising and it forms those convective currents. Take that same candle and basically put it into your gravity. There's no up, there's no down. And so instead the flame basically just steadily diffuses in a perfect circle. It's a very macroscopic analogy, but if you go to the microscopic level of like an individual, you know, sort of molecular reaction, effectively the same thing is happening. On Earth, you have all these like stirring currents effectively that are introducing a lot of entropy and chaos. When you're in microgravity, you instead just have diffusive transport as the primary mode of transport, and it's a much less entropic or much less chaotic, uh, you know, uh, system. And so you can be more precise in your chemistry. It turns out pharmaceutical companies really want to be precise in their chemistry. As you mentioned, this is a, a multifunctional orbiter, and um, the hypersonic testbed element of it, clearly, um, when it comes back to Earth, it goes a hell of a speed um, to come back into Earth's atmosphere. Um, so tell us a little bit about this test bed. What, what does it aim to test? Yeah, so we originally developed our reentry capsule capabilities entirely for our own internal commercial needs, right? We were going to be producing these pharmaceuticals. We needed to bring them back. In order to bring them back as cheaply as possible, we ultimately ended up deciding to go for the lowest cost, highest reliability um, you know, reentry capsule system, which is effectively a purely passive, no aerodynamic you know, control system that effectively hits the atmosphere going Mach 25 and decelerates you know, effectively as quickly as possible uh, from low Earth orbit. This isn't a great system when you, know, you want to have humans on board, so it's not particularly applicable, uh, you know, for any of those, you know, government programs for transporting humans or cargo from the International Space Station. But we always left the door open to any type of government work. Just didn't necessarily realize uh, when we started the company that the particular solution that was most relevant uh, for you know our pharmaceutical needs internally and our commercial needs was also the exact same basically requirements that the hypersonic community uh, within you know uh, U.S., U.K., etc. were looking for uh, in order to be able to uh, test hypersonic systems. 
Wow. I, I guess hypersonic means different things, say, 40 years ago when the X-15 flew over 4,000 miles an hour. Uh, hypersonic today is a lot more than that, I guess. Yeah, so there's definitely a different, you know, different types of categories, let's say, of hypersonic. There's these, like, you know, air-breathing, you know, vehicles that are called, like, Mach, you know, five through six, um, you know, that, uh, you know, can effectively start from within the atmosphere and continue to fly within the atmosphere. Ultimately, you know, there is likely some cap to the level of speed you can get with those types of, you know, air-breathing systems. People are for sure continuing to push that, but they're still in that Mach five, six, seven, eight, you know, Tom Cruise, you know, showed that maybe in theory they could go to, you know, Mach 10, 11, but, you know, nobody's quite, you know, been able to show that yet. Uh, the types of systems that we're talking about are more what are, you know, net similar to, you know, the, what the Chinese demonstrated around boost glide systems, where these are things that basically come in from orbital speeds and use the speed that they're already at up there without a, with a complete lack of atmosphere, which allows you to go much faster. And then they just decelerate along the way to their target on the ground. And so this is in the regime of, you know, Mach 25 when you're first entering, you know, and then obviously you start to decelerate, but you can potentially hit the ground still going, you know, Mach 12, 15, 16 plus effectively. I guess to horribly misquote James T. Kirk, if we're actually going to boldly go anywhere substantial in, in the future, we're going to have to do it fast. What's the general consensus in your industry about how far we can go at the moment in terms of hypersonic flight and expanding further and further into our solar system and universe? Where does it stop? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, in some ways um, it's uh, very exciting to see that People are recognizing that this is a, you know, sort of very strategic, you know, capability. And as somebody who's a, you know, sort of true aerospace geek, you know, wants to eventually retire on the moon, it was very exciting to see this year that for the first time, the U.S. Space Force actually had a larger budget than NASA. And so for the first time, you're seeing basically, you know, sort of military budgets outweigh, you know, civilian budgets, you know, within the aerospace, you know, sector. And so I think that's going to have a huge impact on the general sort of space economy, our capabilities. I do think that you'll start to see, you know, more and more advanced capabilities in low Earth orbit. But I do think there's some very, strategic, you know, sort of, uh, you know, waypoints, you know, outside of even just low Earth orbit. If you think about the Lagrangian points, these are basically points where within two celestial bodies, effectively gravity is equal between the two of them. They become very strategic because effectively you can do station keeping with zero fuel. And so these types of Lagrangian points between the U.S. and the moon, the U.S. and the sun, the U.S. and Mars, I think these types of, you know, sort of Lagrangian point, you know, sort of waypoints are going to become strategic centers for both civil activity, you know, as well as military activity. And that eventually that will also be what, uh, you know, builds the infrastructure so that one day, you know, not even just as a, you know, sort of astronaut for NASA, but as a private civilian, one day I can go and, you know, live in my retirement home on the moon when, you know, uh, you know, one G is, you know, great at everything. And I like being on earth, but, you know, when I'm like <laughs> 85, 90 and, you know, struggling to get up and down the stairs, it'd be nice to just turn down the gravity knob a little bit and, uh, you know, get back to playing some soccer and, uh, you know, being pr pr pretty mobile. <laughs> what a fantastic thought that really is. But do you actually think that in your lifetime we'll get to a stage where, you'll be doing, be able to do that, or at least you can see it. I think so. You know, I think one of the things that really excites us about, you know, Varda's business model and the implications that it has for the space economy is not only just the fact that we're able to obviously create these types of highly, you know, valuable pharmaceuticals, do this type of hypersonic testing, but that as our company scales up, there's two very interesting impl implications. One, relative to like a Starlink or a Planet Labs that are just fully automated satellites, and as their business model scales, they're just going to paralyze more and more satellites. In space manufacturing, the more that you're doing of it, the more likely that you'll actually want to aggregate your space manufacturing facilities together 
together into a single larger facility and eventually actually be able to justify economic value and having a human on board that is actually helping with like, you know, maintenance, communication, some of the more dexterous activities. So one, we provide for economic incentive for there to be humans on board, which leads to there being not just one human, but eventually 10 humans, thousands, millions of humans on board. And eventually you have an industrial city in low earth orbit that's the size of New York City. Um, and so I think that ends up, you know, leading to a very interesting, you know, sort of world. And the second is as our factories start to succeed, we consume a lot of raw materials that right now we bring just from, you know, Earth's surface, uh, you know, the simplest of them being, you know, H2O, water. Um, if you were to instead bring H2O from the lunar surface from an asteroid, it's far, far cheaper because you don't have the expensive, you know, cost of basically, you know, launching from the gravity well and dealing with the atmospheric drag that you have down here on Earth. You could eventually imagine a system where you effectively have like a lunar rail gun that is effectively just nonstop, you know, sort of supplying um, our factories with water. And so I think the implications of Varda succeeding both, you know, involve basically having more humans in orbit, but then actually make things like asteroid mining and lunar ice mining less of a fanciful, you know, sort of activity in that there is a clear commercial customer and commercial use case if Varda is successful versus today. I think those two use cases are more just, you know, in the world of science fiction. Well, Delian, can I just wish you and uh, all your colleagues and the project all the very best and thank you very much for being on MavGeeks. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. Jamie, I need to ask you, did you ever, ever think that when you started doing MavGeeks that you will be talking to somebody about hypersonic test beds and also talking to somebody who wants to retire on the moon, for goodness sake. And play football when he's 88 because <laughs> gravity allows him to do that. I mean, that's just bonkers. But what a lovely idea. It, I, his passion came through. And I think that that's come through with all our guests this week is that you have to have a level of enthusiasm to be in this game that surpasses probably most other careers. Oh, my gosh, and his enthusiasm. I think his worst count was about three, four times everybody else's. <laughs> oh, my life. So next up in our list of absolute legends, I spoke to General Manager of Seridata. That's Melissa Quinn. Now, Melissa was previously head of Spaceport Cornwall. Oh, my gosh. We had a massive chat about everything. Well, space. Melissa, really great to have you with us today. Just talking about the UK... And obviously your career with Spaceport and now with Seridata. How, how do you think that the UK is viewed on the international space stage? So the, so the UK, I think, is very well regarded internationally for what we do in space. Um, we're nowhere near the biggest space economy, but what we do is kind of punch a heavy hit um, in some really niche areas. Um, small satellite manufacturing is one of them. And I think, you know, going forward, just becoming more and more excellent at, at the things that we're good at, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, is definitely that something that you see that comes through the National Space Strategy that was released a couple of years ago. Um, so we're, it's, it's very well respected uh, internationally here in the UK, and it's growing. You know, it's really exciting time for the UK space industry. And it's going from strength to strength and you're seeing a lot of new people entering the industry. And yeah, it's it's a great time to, to be involved in it. And let's just talk about Spaceport Cornwall. I know you spent a lot of time, a, lot, a big part of your career there. What progress did you oversee when you were there? Pretty much everything <laughs> from the minute it was minute of inception, I was there. So back in 2013, 2014, I was working hard up at the site anyways. Um, and so, you know, right from the very beginning, I was there. So I saw it kind of turn from a very small seedling into into the plant and beautiful project that it turned into being because we had to do everything from raise the funding to get the political support to build infrastructure and the buildings to 
get a rocket over the Atlantic to get 60 rocket engineers over Atlantic. It was it was across everything. So my time at Spaceport went from kind of that initial um, feasibility to then stepping into the head role in 2020, where I was really just, you know, leading the team, enabling them to deliver and, and monitoring the, the progress of the project from all aspects, from getting the license through to creating a, a, a merchandise brand that we could sell and, and pay for our outreach activities to doing all the kind of media focused um, spokesperson type activities as well. So it, it, it kind of was every single day was totally different. Now, going back to the, the last launch and obviously things were going very well and then kind of didn't really go to plan. How easy is it for not just yourself, but a group of people who were working on this and spending so much time on this to kind of pull themselves back up and go, the journey continues. Did it give you more inspiration to continue after you'd kind of got over that initial mm, sort of period? Yeah, it was very, very tough <laughs> to say the least. But we always designed the spaceport to be more than just the launch itself. And for us, it was just focusing then on the other businesses. There's lots of other space businesses up on site that we kind of developing this cluster type activity using launch as a catalyst to drive other business to the site. And also, again, going back to it, the school's outreach was one of the probably the most the, the legacy of the project the legacy of the launch was getting the, all those young people I'm, I'm talking hundreds of thousands of young people not just in Cornwall but across the UK inspired over the the 10 years of the project and a couple of weeks after the launch it was just looking at the stacks of letters that had come in from young people say you know we're so proud and it's so exciting and I'm so inspired and letters from teachers and parents saying their child saw the launch and now wants to go into be a be an engineer so it was it was just taking those letters and reading them out and and remembering that's the whole reason that we were wanting to move forward was to continue to inspire that next generation to to go into space. But I think you just captured the whole nation. I mean, myself and my mum living in the East Midlands, we were out on the back garden in our dressing gowns and it was cold, having a look, then realising that actually being in the East Midlands, we're probably not going to see a rocket that's going off the end of Cornwall. But just an absolute, you know, a, a joyous time, I think, for the country. And I think we're all really excited about what's to come with that. So let's bring things right up to date now. Your general manager at Seridata. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the mission and what you actually do there? Yeah, so um, it's already changing quite quickly. <laughs> Seridata is basically a space database. It's the most complete space database there is. So every launch there has ever been, all the way back to Sputnik, every spacecraft all over the world, we track on our database. And we know if it's still operational. We most of the time know the mission, know about where it is, who launched it, how much it cost, uh, if any anomalies happened, what happened, how they happened, insurance claims. I mean, it's all there. So it's a incredible source for any space company agency you can imagine uses our database. There's nothing like it other than ours. And we were purchased by an American company called Slingshot last year. So we're just in the process of of integrating with Slingshot and Slingshot are basically a, a space sustainability company. And they're looking at how we can use our technology to keep safe Uh, to keep space safe, again, Mm. keep getting caught on that, um, (laughs) in the future and protect it for the future generations. A lot of people may have heard of space junk or space debris, and it's a massively growing issue, literally. And if one of those satellites, defunct or not, or rocket body, 
was to collide, it could cause a huge catastrophic event that could take out communications, could take out a GPS or financial institutions. So we need to start to monitor what's going on up there, who's doing what, and to help operational satellites avoid potential collisions. So I think a great example is what we've done to our seas over the last you know, 100 years or so, mm. and we don't want to make the same mistake. Oh, Judy, what a fascinating chat with Melissa. And, you know, what struck me about her and indeed the other guests is not only their enthusiasm, but also, I guess, in this game, you have to have a certain degree of patience because the big stuff like warp drive and travelling light years and all that stuff, we're never going to see that. They're never going to see that in their lifetime. So the idea of having to be patient yet knowing that what you're doing now will actually make a contribution in the future is, is really quite a nice, satisfying thought, I would have suggest these people that we're speaking to wake up in the morning have a coffee and then go oh i'll stop my working day all about space <laughs> it just blows my tiny mind that, that people that their whole career is about something that is otherworldly for people like you and me you know what i mean it's just incredible and you know it's funny you should say that because our next and final guest whilst we look back on international space week is um a fantastic get i mean sean our producer won't thank me for mentioning him but he's he's done the legwork on this and i got the opportunity to speak to uh, dr paul bates who's the ceo of the uk space agency for goodness sake um so he's very much in charge of looking at projects of the future. And the reason I'm picking up on what you said is because when we spoke, he basically told me, well, I'll get up, I'll speak to NASA. In the afternoon, I'll speak to the European Space Agency <laughs> and all the other agencies in between. It's just a fantastic job. But uh, yeah, we had a really good chat. Paul, thanks again for your time. Would you perhaps just give us a potted history of the Space Agency and why and uh, why it was set up in the first place? Yeah, happy to. Thanks very much for the time to... Um to be part of this podcast, though. So I think it was April 2010 that the UK Space Agency properly came into being. So we're kind of officially a teenager now. Uh, but we took over from uh, something called the British National Space Centre, which had probably been around for a good sort of 20 years or so beforehand. The, the sort of the birth of this idea was that you know, you've got the, the space agencies that everybody knows about, like NASA and the European Space Agency. But going back in, you know, in time enough, the government realised that space is only going to become more important. I think we know a lot more about that now than we did back in the day. But it was important that, you know, therefore to kind of give a little bit of separation from otherwise the sort of civil servants who'd be working in the heart of government, give this organisation a name, call it an agency, and just give it a bit more sort of security. It's all part of the government, very clear on that. But, you know, give it its own budget, its own... You know, leadership team, increasing you know, numbers of stuff, and means that we can focus on one thing 100%, which in our case is space. And so what are the priorities for the agency in terms of what you hope to achieve and, and what you're being asked to achieve? Yeah, so one of the, uh, the finest documents that you could hope to read is the UK Space Agency Corporate Plan. It's an absolutely riveting read. Anybody wants to, just kind of get it out there and... Um, you know, have a snooze after you've read it or, or uh, you know, in that we do set out our priorities. But what we're really talking about with space, what's the point of us before we get to all the kind of priorities? The point of having a space agent, the point of doing space, firstly, and maybe most importantly, it's to protect the Earth and protect 
the orbital environment, right? We take that very, very seriously. Already about half, if not more, of all the data we use for the climate emergency, that comes from satellite data. So job one, protect. And that includes the increasingly large amount of debris from space. And the more and more satellites that get launched, the more and more risk there is that things start hitting each other. And I don't suppose you can do much in space without collaborating. So who do you go and seek out? Who, who are your major partners and, and how does that cooperation work? Yeah, right. You're spot on. It, the space is far too complicated. It's far too hard and it's too damn expensive to try and do on your own. And that's true, actually, no matter what country you are. So yesterday, right, my diary yesterday, I started off with meeting our colleagues from NASA who are in town as the science director of NASA, 144 different missions that they're flying to talk about what we're doing on Mars together. The next part of the day, we're talking to the European Space Agency. We are one of the 22 countries that are kind of collectively own the European Space Agency. It's not part of the European Union. It's a wholly separate body. And us and the French and the Germans and the Italians and 18 other countries, we kind of collectively oversee it. So I was meeting with their teams to see what their plans are, how that supports the UK interests. The UK, one of the things we do so well in space is the space science. The Webb Telescope, give a sense of that. That is a $10 billion experiment. And we contribute around about £40 million on the instruments themselves. So it's like a tiny fraction. There are only actually four main instruments in the whole of that, that telescope. One of them was built designed in uh, Edinburgh, built in Leicester, and the chief researcher right across Europe on it is a Brit, Gillian Wright. So we have this ability to piggyback, or literally actually piggyback on the Webb Telescope and drive up our sp uh, space science. So we are a player in, in the space world? Oh, yes, we are. Yes, we absolutely are. So you can do these things in different ways. If you look at the science, we're right up there, absolutely top. When it comes to building small satellites, we call them the CubeSats because they look a bit like a, well, they're a sort of shoebox-sized cube. That's where most satellites these days are being built. Uh, we build more space satellites, CubeSats, in the UK than anywhere outside the West Coast of the US. Okay, final couple of questions. I mean, we've had Helen Sharman, we've had Tim Peake, of course, who's one of our own ex-military. Is there any time in the future where you see the UK Space Agency actually training astronauts, or is it always, again, going to be a collaborative effort? And indeed, are you looking to recruit? Because pick me and I'll play. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, Jamie, I wish we'd had this conversation a year ago, because we've just completed our big recruitment cycle so the new class of 2022 astronauts got announced back in November. It's going to get really pretty exciting on exploration. We are a couple of years, three years out maybe, from putting people back on the moon. Uh, that'll be the first woman, the first person of colour as well, going back to the moon. That's part of what we call the Artemis programme. Artemis is the sister of Apollo. That's why it's called the Artemis programme. We're really now in the Artemis generation. So we're going to have people back on the lunar surface, it's going to feel very different to how it felt 50 or so years ago. It won't be a case of going for a few days, what people would sort of call the flags and the footprints. This is about um, establishing a much more permanent presence on the moon. So the early missions are likely to be over a, a couple of weeks or so, extending out a bit longer than that. But the aim is to start to build up longer and longer duration projects on the moon so that we can start to do the research, not least at the moon's south pole, 
where we know that there's water. And if you imagine what that means, you've got water, you've got hydrogen, you've got oxygen, very important for propellant so that you can go further than the moon, but also very important as a power source. So the moon is looking good for this decade. Mars, two pretty amazing missions should be launching in 2028. One is called the Mars Sample Return Mission and the other is called the Rosalind Franklin Mission. I'm just going to kind of hold far on both of those for a second because they're both so impressive. That is a fantastic thought to leave on. Uh, Dr. Paul Bate, thank you very much for your time. You know what, Jamie? I wonder if when Dr. Paul Bate was just 10-year-old Paul Bate, if he used to look at stars and think, one day I am going to be king. <laughs> the king of space for the UK. Because that's basically what he is, isn't he? You know what I mean? Talk Like you were saying, talking to NASA, talking to the European Space Station. It, just absolutely incredible. And what a brilliantly humble and enthusiastic man. He was. And also nice to know that, you know, we do have people that are going to go up in space. Our, the UK is contributing to the astronaut uh, gene pool, so to speak. So uh, that is good news. And thankfully for all involved, that doesn't include you and I, Jamie. What have we got coming up next week? Yep, I'll be harking back to the summer and a very hot one it was too, speaking to the wonderful squadron leader, Brian Withers, MBE AFC. He was a Shackleton pilot back in the day and he actually flew the very aircraft that we got to tour around. Um, subsequently in, in his career, he went on to fly the Nimrod. So the guy has, a, has had a wonderful aviation career. He's, what, 77, 78 now. You wouldn't know it the way he enthuses about the aircraft that he used to fly. Uh, so looking forward to sharing that with you next week. Uh, Squadron leader Brian with us. Sounds like it was a lovely day. I knew you'd say I knew you'd say <laughs> So if you've enjoyed Mav Geeks, we really hope that you do because we absolutely love doing it. Then please, please, please send us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're available, of course, on all your favourite podcast platforms. And you send in a review, please, a good one, means that we get to do this all the time because we love it so much. And we'd like your input as well. So please drop us a line with your aviation experiences, what you think of the programme, anything really. Mavgeeks at bfbs.com is the address. Cool. Catch you next week. Say goodbye, Jamie. Goodbye, Jamie.